Hi, I'm Tony Russo, and this is usually a Bagel Manifesto, but this week I'm doing a promotion on my audiobook, Dragged into the Light, Truthers, Reptilians, Super Soldiers, and Death Inside an Online Cult, and I'm going to play for you the introduction and the first two chapters. If you like what you hear, you can buy it any place you buy audiobooks. If you're an Audible subscriber, you can just make it your pick for the month. I would super appreciate that. And if you like what you hear and wanted to rate and review it on wherever you bought it, that would be super awesome for me. If you like it, but you're more of a I want to hold the book and read it person, the book is available in all formats, on all platforms, all the time. I promise we're never running out. All right, let's get into it. Introduction. And if anyone tried to loose another and lead him up to the light, let them only catch the offender, and they would put him to death. Plato. The Republic. I want to implicate you in this story the same way I was implicated. I want that realization to come to you the same way it came to me. I wasn't drawn to this story. It was suggested by a colleague. I had just come off more than two years interviewing combat veterans for the This Is War podcast and was looking for something else to write about. Have you seen this Sherry Shriner reptile thing? The colleague asked. I saw Sherry's story as an introduction to a larger story about for-profit cults and internet scammers. As I dove deeper, though, her story's implications broadened as QAnon and other conspiracy actors and theories bubbled up into the mainstream. Anthony Warner, the 2020 Nashville Christmas bomber who espoused many of the beliefs I'm about to discuss, was reported to have written, They put a switch into the human brain so they could walk among us and appear human. It's a description of the reptilian conspiracy espoused by the people I've dubbed the Shrinerites, nearly down to the word. I watched a conspiracy theory-driven mob take over the U.S. Capitol, I imagine, the way a true prophet might see their vague notions solidify, shadows of inklings emerging from the gray. Worse, I saw, and still see, the ripples. The obvious responses and reactions, finger-pointing and think-piecing about how the internet breeds these beasts. I'm here to tell you that the internet doesn't breed monsters any more than a coop breeds pigeons. We breed the monsters. The internet just lets them thrive. And as we wring our hands about what the internet does as if it has volition, we avoid responsibility. We avoid the truth. In this case, that conspiracy theory culture is a symptom of our crumbling belief in religion's ability to salve and in the farce of professional political discourse. In many cases, the people who are most susceptible to these conspiracies and cults are those who believe most in God and country and are heartbroken by their betrayal. It's not just that religious and political figures dodge leadership responsibilities. It's that their lies have cast the idea of safety or even of stasis into serious doubt. Conspiracy theories replace their perceived chaos with order. They're dissembling with fixed truths and give line to their claims of higher service. That's the appeal. To dismiss large communities of people as unwilling slaves to the corporate internet misses their search for certainty while relieving our complicity, accepting their striving to understand as genuine rather than as the result of some deeper madness helped me understand the people in this story better. The short answer to why they cling to their beliefs is the same reason you cling to yours. It is comfortable and safe. 
how and why they choose their beliefs is where we feel like we can step back and judge. That was the hardest realization for me in reporting this book, and at times I fail to suspend judgment. It is so difficult not to be dismissive once we realize that in the conspiracy theorists' reality, incompatible or inconsistent claims live together happily. Orgone, a mystical substance invented from whole cloth by a respected psychologist, stands out as the most impenetrable idea in this story. It works under such conditional rules as to be baffling in its meaninglessness, yet people's lives have been changed and ruined by it. Another difficulty was the temptation to understand and refute the conspiracy theories or dismiss them out of hand. I tried to find a middle ground where I understood well enough to explain without getting caught up in what I knew was utter nonsense. For example, I struggled to navigate the murky rules for how and when reptilians take over a person's body. But since that doesn't ever happen, I leave the nebulous reasoning untouched. The conspiracies, for me, are a distraction from what's going on, which is a predictable amount of religious charlatanism feeding on soul-crushing fear and loneliness. What I've come to discover is that beneath the accounts of crazy beliefs, ritual shunning, and tragic deaths is a look at a dying culture. In a time when it is common to talk about two Americas, I worry that we are talking about two realities. We can agree to disagree about whether or not there's a God, but we can't agree to disagree about whether or not I am possessed by an evil spirit. All the Christian truthers in this book believe in literal demonic possession. Many believe demons pop in and out of bodies, using people around the target as hosts while they execute their torment. If you say I'm possessed, we don't have a difference of opinion. We're occupying two realities. Plato's allegory of the cave is supposed to praise the search for truth, but the line I borrowed at the beginning of this introduction has always been the takeaway for me. People want to be safe and comfortable in their beliefs and their lives. On the face of it, this is a story about when death is preferable to trading a certain reality for an uncertain one. What follows is my account of an attempt to come to terms with both what happened and why things happened as they did. As loud as they tend to be, the old-time religions are dying, or at least changing. Reality is raining down upon them. Since so many people are seeking justification where none can be found in accepted reality, they've carved out their own, where the God of the Hebrews and science fiction cohabitate. And the truth is what you say it is. He said, here, press this, here, oh my God. Barbara Rogers stood screaming over the fresh corpse of Stephen Minio. The scene was too vivid, as if it were staged. Ignoring the brain matter on the bed, Barbara shook Stephen again, begging him to wake up as she choked back another wave of panic. She wanted more than anything for him to get back up, to relive the last moments of his life, of their life together, and prevent this from ever happening. Maybe they had gone to bed as she wanted to, and she was just dreaming. Maybe this was one of those alternate realities Stephen was so obsessed with, and somewhere in another dimension, none of this had happened. She looked into his empty face, his head lolled back as if he were dozing, but his open eyes told a different story. The agony was gone, but so was the humor, the defiance, and the adoration they'd contained before the gun went off. She looked again at the fresh bullet wound in the middle of his forehead, and the screams returned. Barbara Rogers checked out. The next few hours were just snapshots, 
a frantic 911 call telling the dispatcher that Stephen had put the gun in her hands and then to his own head. He said, here, press this here. Oh my God. Stephen's limp body as she looked around for the gun at the dispatcher's request. The foul smell of cramped living and gunpowder. The patrolman coming around the corner, backlit by the blue and red lights of his cruiser in the humid, pre-dawn Pocono Mountain summer, sitting handcuffed in the back of his cruiser, cuffs tight against her thin wrists, pinching and discomforting as more police arrive. The long, dark ride to the Pocono Mountain Regional Police Department as the sun threatened to break over the Pocono Mountains of eastern Pennsylvania. Sometime after she was handcuffed and before her interrogation started, Barbara knew her old life was over, but she could not fathom why. Only that it all started with Sherry Schreiner. The crime scene was a disaster, a homicide in the back room of a trailer that had been converted into a studio apartment. The victim, identified as Stephen M. Minio, a 32-year-old New Jersey man who shared the space with the suspect, 42-year-old Barbara Helen Rogers, sat on the floor, hands at his side, legs crossed at the calves, head back on the bed. The star-shaped powder burn around his head wound suggested the gun had been pressed against it, or at least quite close, before discharge. Stephen's bulletproof vest was open in the middle of the floor, not far from the body. Given the close quarters, though, everything in the room was near the body. Yet the room felt smaller than that. Stephen and Barbara stuffed all their possessions into this place, piled high in closets and spilling from drawers, stacked on the cheap entertainment center and in loose piles. Stephen's phone was on the bed, silent. There was evidence of heavy drinking in addition to a technically legal drug called Kratom, a bevy of prescription pills, some labeled, some not, all would be identified as Barbara's. In the yard, fewer than 30 yards from the scene and not far from the small wooded area the trailer bordered, police found four spent rounds. Five shots had been fired from the gun. There was a casing missing. On its face, this was a domestic incident gone wrong. One of them was leaving or cheating or being abusive. A handgun came out. End of story. What the authorities didn't know at the time was this was the latest in a series of destroyed lives at the hands of Sherry Schreiner, an internet preacher and rural Ohio housewife, spreading hate, paranoia, and doomsday prophecy. Sitting at her computer, the air stale with grease and cigarette smoke, Sherry commanded an army of thousands each warrior desperate to fight in the impending war of Armageddon, each assured they were under personal attack from the reptilian forces of the New World Order and exhorted to take the fight to the enemy, the pop stars, actors, and world leaders who were secret lizard people bent on world domination. The initial story on the local news stations and in the Pocono record said a woman killed her boyfriend because he asked her to, claiming it was his only escape from Sherry Schreiner's cult. According to police, Stephen believed the cult leader had turned into a reptile. The fervor lasted a few weeks, gaining legs from the bizarre and clickable headlines they provided. Many taking the form of man begs to be killed to escape reptile cult. Think pieces about internet cults and the pervasive and ill effects of YouTube conspiracies rose and fell as they tend to in a media sensation's death throes. After all, the upshot was one crazy person killed another crazy person for no reason. It's a story with limited appeal. It certainly hadn't appealed to me.
I didn't get wind of Sherry Schreiner for more than 18 months after Stephen's death, and even then it seemed like a shallow story. I was a freelance journalist searching for a story that was true crime adjacent to turn into a podcast. I was developing one about religious scammers with a convoluted belief in the economic reset. I wasn't compelled by a guy who was in a crazy reptile conspiracy cult and got offed. But what I would come to discover is that these weren't crazy people. They were part of a Christian subculture where aliens disguised as humans fight on the side of evil and New World Order cabals trade in pedophilia and mass cannibalism. Followers believe this for the same reason most of us believe whatever we believe. Someone they trusted told them or personal experience did. It's less mental illness than an oversensitivity to disinformation. The people I've researched and spoken with are victims of a crumbling power structure, one where the old guard can't be trusted to uphold traditional morals and where government officials have dropped the pretense of public service. They are not wrong, but they can't cope with the banality of that truth. I started looking into Stephen's death in 2019. For more than a year, I was drawn into a world where the official story was always a lie. I spoke with people whom I came to discover didn't just have fringe opinions, but who inhabited a different reality. One where Lucifer operates with impunity and his minions can possess or even replace any person at any time. Among the thousands of pages and files in the court records, I discovered audio files. As it would turn out, Stephen Minio preferred to communicate by sending audio messages over Facebook Messenger. Many of his interlocutors followed suit. As a result, I got to hear their tone and the utter sincerity with which they professed their beliefs to one another. I listened, stunned, for hours. When I stopped gawking at all the absurdities, and it was difficult to look away sometimes, I saw the lengths to which people would go to protect their fragile reality and wondered how I would respond if someone tried to tell me that nothing I believed was true, not just about God, but about my self-image and my experiences. I realized Sherry's followers were fighting like mad to keep from realizing theirs was a false reality, choosing instead to add layers of even less credible explanations than they'd begun with. I learned about Orgone, a powerful spiritual force that government doesn't want us to have, and about shapeshifters and clones. Shapeshifters are individuals who can change their form at will. I learned how organized religion came to be under Satan's thumb and the very real occurrence of spiritual warfare. Mostly, I learned how one rural housewife with the sheer audacity to double down on every lie could make a small fortune baiting the lonely, gaslighting the paranoid, and ruining so many lives along the way. Chapter 2. I know full well this is crazy. Kelly Marie Pingilly concentrated on Sherry Schreiner's voice and kept typing. God only knows what time it was, not that it mattered. Kelly was a being outside of time. She knew that now. Sherry had taught her that. Everything in Kelly's life made sense now. The attacks, the years of torture in the bowels of hell, the inability to connect to her Lutheran community in any way. Sherry knew all about it had been through it, and had come out on the other side anointed by Yahuwah, which is God's real name, for her fidelity. Kelly felt privileged to transcribe Sherry's radio shows, to listen closely and learn, sure, but to interpret as well. 
In some ways, she was serving Yah through Sherry, but in other ways, she was preparing for her own final transformation into an angel in the flesh. Sherry Shriner's ministry was a machine that burned human fuel. Like so many others, it depended on a lot of donations and even more volunteer work. As her radio show gained popularity, Sherry made calls for transcription volunteers, people to help spread the word to those who couldn't or didn't stream the audio. The genius of this can't be overstated. It's only in the last few years that podcasts have started posting transcripts to improve their search engine results. The transcriptions drove Sherry's popularity, and Kelly transcribed dozens, if not hundreds, of her shows. For most of her life, Kelly lived with her parents, her sister Amanda and her brother Nate, in the Detroit suburb of Redford, Michigan. She was a quirky, silly, good-natured young woman, clear-eyed and fair-skinned, with a tendency to comb her long brown hair in almost arrow-straight lines around her bangs, letting the rest frame her face and spill down her front. She looked younger than her 22 years, but not because she was petite as much as because she radiated energy, innocence, and enthusiasm. Kelly devoted more than two years of her life to Sherry's cause, volunteering full-time as a Sherry Shriner evangelist. She believed with all her heart that the more people she exposed to Sherry's truth, the better. When she first stumbled upon Sherry's teachings, however, she had no idea she would be the latest in a litany of rivals and acolytes Sherry burned through in her rise to greater and greater popularity. Kelly arrived in Sherry's Facebook chat room the way so many others had, trying to reconcile the Illuminati, the New World Order, NWO, aliens, and the Bible. She was bright and friendly, open to new ideas she found as she started looking beyond her conservative Lutheran upbringing. To her, being more open-minded would help reconcile some of the questions she had about faith, salvation, and the end times. Kelly was obsessed with being good from an early age. She'd confessed to her friend Rebecca Lassac that she needed to atone for her elementary school viciousness, to make an outward effort to be a better Christian and to do more good. Long before she was fascinated by end times prophecy, Kelly obsessed over all things soteriological. That is, she wanted to know the rules for getting into heaven, for being a good person, and for doing what God wanted of her. Religion was as much her entertainment as it was her ethical jumping-off point, and she believed the Bible contained answers for those willing to study and understand its hidden meanings. Kelly's curiosity about salvation and punishment seemed to revolve around an innocent fascination with sex. She began wondering whether someone who was close to her had been intimate with their fiancé, and it terrified her. What if they died before they got married? Would they go to hell? What if they broke up? It was a simple and natural curiosity that devolved into an obsession that only darkened over time. It's impossible to begin to comprehend the damage religious sexual prohibitions have done. There's emerging evidence that conspiracy theory obsession with child trafficking is tied to child abuse among the ultra-religious. Unable to come to terms with abuse in their own backyards, they invent an evil other to blame. A healthy attitude about human sexual nature isn't part of the religious platform. As a result, there's a breaking point for young adults where rules about sex weighed against the threat of hell lose their force or become an obsession. Just as Kelly obsessed about premarital sex, another friend, Marcy Walsh, struggled with her sexuality. She thought she might be attracted to girls, which, 
as she had been taught since she was little, was a direct ticket to hell. As bright, curious students in a conservative Christian high school, looking for answers in the Bible just seemed natural. Kelly and Marcy were young and naive when they started having adult conversations and searching for biblical answers. And as they got older, they each found different answers to the nebulous questions about life and morality. Kelly was one of a foursome that included Rebecca, Britt Simpson, and Marcy in one of those deep and admirable relationships that transcends religious differences and doesn't rely on the past, but rather on a deep mutual affinity. These were four girls who leaned on each other as their worlds transformed, and relationships with their parents, other friends, boys, and spirituality became both more intricate and complex. All had serious adult-level struggles and felt as if they only had one another. Rebecca lost her mother at the end of their freshman year of high school. Marcy struggled with her identity, and Kelly worried over her parents' failing marriage. Britt switched to a secular school before long where she had her own adjustment issues. Although Britt bailed on conservative religion, it didn't matter to the other three. They all leaned into nerd culture one way or another, each finding their preferred outlet, but they bonded over board games. The Blue Roof Diner could have been a Howard Johnson's back in the 1970s, an A-frame-style building with peaked awnings above the side entrances. It's a classic suburban alt-kid hangout, situated along one of the arterial highways pumping sprawl from nearby Detroit. The girls would sit in a booth, playing euchre and occasionally succumbing to the perpetual aroma of coffee and french fries, the latter underdone, the former burned black, until all hours of the night. They were well-behaved kids, too young to hit the bars, so this was a pleasant alternative to a night in anyone's parents' house. They came to the Blue Roof to laugh and to become better friends, and they succeeded every time. Once, Kelly noticed an elderly man struggling with his meal. He was having trouble cutting his steak into small enough pieces. Kelly jumped up, crossed the aisle, and cut his entire dinner for him. She wasn't showing off or being giddy, just striving to help wherever she could. But it's notable how what Kelly saw as self-imposed penance looked to everyone else like genuine Christian charity. Although they drifted in their personal lives after graduation, each staring terrified into adulthood in her own way, the next two years found Kelly drifting into a deepening depression. She'd done well in school but didn't head straight off to college. Kelly was trying to find herself and fought to come to terms with her parents' deteriorating marriage. Once her parents divorced, Kelly confided her relief to Rebecca and seemed to lighten after. Kelly tried to be relentless in her optimism. She believed that if a person could act a certain way, they could achieve their goals, and her goal, it seemed, was making sure she got into heaven. It's naive to dismiss the mystical aspect of prayer as any different from spells. Many people believe prayers said in the correct way with the correct attitude and intention can sway their deity. The more Kelly studied the Bible and researched and interpreted what it was purported to say about salvation, the closer she came to Sherry Schreiner's orbit. By 2010, she entered that mad gravity and would spend the rest of her life torn between the world she knew and the one she discovered. When Rebecca invited Kelly to come live with her in Adrian, Michigan, not far from Detroit, she had already taken those first tentative steps into the mystical. Rebecca had opened a Cutco cutlery distributorship, selling knives and hiring others to sell them as well. Cutco is a storied multi-level marketing MLM endeavor that's had distributors selling knives door-to-door for more than 50 years. 
Rebecca hired Kelly to work for her, and the pair moved into a small apartment that acted as a combination office-bachelorette pad. Kelly had a car and no job. Rebecca had a job and no car. Plus, they were best friends and it was an adventure. A couple of 20-somethings test-driving adulthood. This is almost certainly where Kelly crossed paths with Sherry Schreiner for the first time. Adrian is a small Midwestern city or a large Midwestern town. It has the traditional storefront with upstairs apartments downtown, a Methodist college, and a struggling arts scene. As late as 2010, it had a video store where Rebecca and Kelly would stock up on movies to try and mitigate the bleak evenings. They weren't broke, but neither were they flush, and there was nothing for them in Adrian. Then, for the first time in their lives, Rebecca started butting heads with Kelly over religion. Depression is a plague that grips some people worse than others, but it's an aspect of this story I always see lurking in the background. Even as I fight temptation to cast everyone involved as suffering from depression and attribute everything that happened to this low, black, empty feeling, it bears acknowledging. Without casting too much aspersion cut goes way, direct sales is a difficult and tenuous way to make a living, and it was all the girls had in their day-to-day lives, enduring long hours in the office followed by evenings in front of the television, watching whatever they could rent at the Adrian Video Store and waiting for bedtime. Eventually, Kelly started breaking off a little early to go online, where she lost herself in Sherry Schreiner's blogs and YouTube videos. Sherry was a fan of the conspiracy website Vigilant Citizen and happy to co-opt its videos to spread her message. Vigilant Citizen is a website that spews NWO conspiracies, proof that they are out to get you. It's garden variety stuff, secret symbols in music videos, shadow police with superpowers kidnapping people in dark, grainy security footage. One thing that binds the conspiracy theory crowd together is they don't collect evidence. They collect proof. I suspect many of them do not know the difference between the pieces and the puzzle. Sherry didn't produce a lot of videos. Instead, she shared others as if they were textbooks she would be lecturing on. It didn't matter whether she agreed with the person who made the video, only that there was a section in it she could point to and say, this is what I had prophesied earlier. Kelly watched Rapt as Sherry explained how rich and powerful celebrities and international politicians had all been or were going to be replaced by reptilians after having their souls removed as part of Lucifer's end times reign. Sherry would show how slow motion video, sometimes from the Vigilant Citizen site, revealed skin moving on people's faces, a telltale sign they were reptiles wearing human suits. Like a junior editor at the World Weekly News, Sherry highlighted unexplainable bruises and scars, indicating recent soul scalping, the process by which reptilians replace a victim's soul. Using other people's YouTube videos, she also showed her followers how prominent backward masking, the messages you can hear if you play audio in reverse, and arcane symbolism are in popular culture. Eventually, Kelly introduced Rebecca to Vigilant Citizen, showing her the satanic symbolism in Lady Gaga. Rebecca blew it off as a case of a crackpot on the internet, but Kelly objected. I know full well it's crazy, Kelly said. If I were you, I would also think it's crazy, but it is totally true. What Rebecca would come to learn over those next six weeks was that by totally true, Kelly meant that the information had been confirmed by Sherry Schreiner, but it would be much longer than that until they both learned that Sherry Schreiner was a bald-faced liar and a religious con artist. So, what do you think? 
You can email me and tell me at buytonyrusso at gmail.com. You can subscribe to everything through the abagomanifesto.com website and subscribe to the newsletter there as well. Um, I'll be back next week with another Bagel Manifesto that's going to be different from what you're used to listening to. I'm changing up the format a little bit. That's why it's been three weeks instead of two weeks since you've last heard from me there. But I hope you like this and I hope you tell people about it. Please forward this if you know someone who's into this kind of thing and you think they'd get a kick out of the audiobook, but you're not sure. Send them this if I, I assure you it goes way downhill from here. This is this is just the beginning of what turned out to be a nutty, nutty story that I still think is pretty important. And I think there's stuff we can learn from it. Uh, so until next week, until next time, keep the faith.